public service programming, uh, which is, of course, uh, something that radio stations are legally obligated to do. And we do it joyfully here on CBN, bringing locally produced public affairs programming to the community, which we serve. And, of course, the big story of the week that just will not stop, will not go away, is this uh, surveillance question. There's new disclosures about the identity of the leaker and so forth. And uh, we'll come to uh, that in just a moment. Uh, But also some really interesting developments with regards to uh, United States and its relationship with China. Of course, uh, the leading growing economic power. Uh, with that, and India have really stepped forward into the top levels of uh, economically powerful countries. The United States no longer enjoys the monopoly on international and military and financial power. Uh, for someone uh, such as myself, born in 1963, it sometimes feels as though uh, throughout the course of my life, as I have you know, was uh, begun, uh, began to be made aware of the greater world in which we live outside your own personal experiences and those of your neighborhood and community to the nation and then to the world at large. It seems that uh, throughout the course of my life, uh, I have witnessed the decline of American prestige and power. And of course, the uh, two are intertwined. Uh, you, you begin to wonder uh, which goes first and which is more reluctantly uh, recognized. Uh, the decline of power, the decline of prestige, uh, of course, prestige tied up with ideas of clout and uh, arrogance. Uh, some vestiges of American exceptionalism uh, still cling fiercely <clears throat> to the concept of the one superpower, but... Uh, We need to address these changes in the world, recognize uh, our proper place in it, behave accordingly. And, of course, our track record for behavior as a nation is mixed uh, at best, which is probably uh, all that can be said of any nation. Certainly, uh, America is uh, no worse than any other great nation in history, and in many respects, much better. Uh, But, of course, not without our flaws crimes, uh, sins, and uh, downright illegalities. But uh, honest self-appraisal is really not something that countries generally do, but that citizens must do. Uh, And of course, hope that uh, through an electoral process, uh, we can get the representatives who reflect our needs. Sadly, things have not turned out this way (laughs) in American democracy where uh, we have basically handed the reins over to the corporations that benefit and prosper from uh, conflict and turmoil and have uh, basically allowed uh, elections themselves to become the toys and playthings of the fiscal elite uh, recognized uh, by the Supreme Court as uh, you know, equating cash money with speech. Uh, puts us in very desperate straits for uh, the future and how we may grapple with uh, the mechanisms in place uh, for us 
uh, to protect and serve ourselves, which is really all government uh, is supposed to do uh, at its best. And, of course, Winston Churchill famously observed that uh, democracy is the worst form of government in the world, except for all the others. Um, uh, An ironic comment that uh, seems to bear much truth, even though Winston Churchill himself is not necessarily uh, all that in a bag of chips, as some would claim. Uh, But before we get into the uh, developments with China and uh, some questions and aspects of this surveillance uh, to do, uh, I want to go quickly first to a column in today's Financial Times by Rula Khalaf, a Lebanese correspondent who reports regularly on the Middle East uh, for the Financial Times, a British uh, business newspaper. Um, And she always has some good insights. And since we devoted much of last week's program to the ongoing troubles in Syria, basically, there's no need to euphemize them with the phrase troubles, let's call it what it is, the unspoken civil war that essentially rages in Syria, um, has, of course, um, repercussions, consequences that spill over into the other countries of the region. Uh, Of course, George W. Bush and his boneheaded war on Iraq back in 2003. Part of the argument and the claim at the time was that nation building, we will create stable states. And uh, through this process, costly as it may be, oh, by the way, it'll pay for itself because Iraqi oil will begin to flow and pay for uh, the expenses here. That turned out not to be true. Um Just the opposite, in fact, happened. Uh, Iraq is somewhat stable, although there are hints and uh, signifiers that the uh, sectarian war between Sunni and Shia that flared up uh, quite dramatically in the wake of the United States military incursion there uh, might be bubbling up again. Uh, the ripples of instability spread like a shockwave throughout uh, the Middle East, and uh, no country in the region has basically been spared the repercussions and overflow and spillage, uh, blowback, whatever other phrase you might like to apply, uh, to the consequences and follow-up of the ill-considered venture into Iraq uh, in 2003. Uh, So here we are uh, with Syria Uh, beginning to spill over into uh, neighboring countries as well. So I'm going to read uh, from uh, Rula Khalaf's column here, Global Insight. The title is, Hezbollah and Iran play high-stakes game in Syrian conflict. Has Syria unleashed a religious war that will spread across the Middle East? The question is raised ever more often by Western political analysts as Sunni-Shia strains heighten, and the threat of spillover intensifies. Sectarian fears have been fed by the overt intervention of Lebanon's Hezbollah, the powerful Iranian ally and Shia militant group, on the side of the Syrian regime. One of Hezbollah's justifications has been sectarian in nature. It has played on fears of radical Sunni elimination of the small Shia minority in Syria, which, like other non-Sunni groups, has remained loyal to the regime of Bashar al-Assad. Hezbollah's involvement 
which secured the capture of Kwasir last week, ignited the wrath of Sunni clerics, who have vented their frustration at the military gains made by Mr. Assad in dangerously sectarian overtones. Sheikh Yusuf Qadrawi, Karadawi, pardon me, one of the most prominent, called on Sunni to join the battle against Mr. Assad. Quote, how could 100 million Shia worldwide defeat 1.7 billion Sunni? He asked, close quote. Uh, close quote, he asked. Beyond Syria, sectarian tensions are on the rise. To the south, Lebanon, polarized by a struggle between Hezbollah and its Sunni opponents, is now more likely to suffer violent sectarian spillover. To the east, Iraqis fear a renewal of the civil war that raged after the 2003-led invasion as Sunni extremists step up attacks on Shia communities. Meanwhile, the main Sunni power in the region, Saudi Arabia, is fighting a proxy war against Shia Iran in Syria. The Saudis, along with Qatar and Turkey and two other Sunni countries, are the main backers of Syria's rebels. Iran is the dedicated supporter of Mr. Assad, whose own Alawite regime is drawn from an offshoot of Shia Islam. But the bases of conflicts raging today are political, not religious. Sectarian splits are being exploited by authoritarian players in their effort to stay in power. In Syria, where the majority is Sunni, the opposition rose against regime oppression, not the Assad family's Alawite affiliation, and the Alawite neither consider themselves nor share in the practices of the Shia. The regime, however, has successfully made use of the country's religious mosaic, bolstering support among minorities by claiming it is fighting a Sunni extremist threat. That strategy has worked to some extent, as rebel fighters became more radicalized and jihadis joined the battle. Still, despite a rise in sectarian killings, Syria's opposition mostly considers its fight to be against the regime, not the Alawite community or its Christian and Shia partners. In Iraq, the intensity of the violence over the past month might have been exacerbated by the conflict in Syria, but its roots lie in the creeping authoritarianism of the Prime Minister, Nouri al-Maliki. For months, the Sunni heartland in Iraq has been in peaceful rebellion against the Shia-led government, demanding an end to the marginalization and heavy-handed sec security treatment. Shia rivals to Mr. Maliki have been sympathetic to Sunni grievances. Indeed, the real political conflict in Iraq cuts across sectarian lines, with Kurds, Sunni, and Shia all disillusioned by Mr. Maliki's leadership. The struggle for Syria is now a critical element of the Cold War between Iran and its Sunni rivals. What the so-called axis of resistance, quote-unquote, a radical anti-Western alliance that stretches from the Islamic regime in Tehran through Syria to Lebanon's Hezbollah, was on the rise after the 2003 Iraq War. It is the Sunni powers of the Gulf, along with Turkey, that have appeared to gain the upper hand since the Arab uprisings of 2011. 
In both Lebanon and Iraq, Shia officials say the fall of the Syrian regime would threaten Hezbollah's very existence in Lebanon and bolster former Sunni Ba'athists in Iraq. That is why Iran and Hezbollah, which had always taken pride in the wider Sunni support for their anti-Western and anti-Israeli message, are willing to lose this backing and fall back on a more sectarian attitude. They are apparently calculating that, even at the risk of inflaming sectarian divisions, they will be able to arrest the perceived threat from Sunni states and avoid a larger regional conflict. This treacherous game, however, could end up achieving the opposite, spreading sectarian hatred more viciously beyond Syria's borders. That is the writing of Rula Kalaf in uh, Monday, June 10th, Financial Times. And, of course, uh, this is already happening. There were, uh, was an incident uh, over the weekend outside of an embassy in Beirut in which uh, a Shia was shot by a citizen, uh, quote-unquote a citizen, uh, undeterminable at this point uh, what affiliation that person has. But, of course, suspicions run high that it's sectarian in nature. And furthermore, uh, to pop over to Iraq... The uh, Shia attempt to forge an alliance with the Kurds, uh, giving this extended autonomous uh, status to the Kurdish region of Iraq. Uh, Maliki has gone recently to speak with uh, Kurdish representatives in the autonomous Kurdish region of Iraq uh, with regards to uh, Kurdish contracts uh, being drafted with uh, international, uh, that is non-Iraqi, uh, oil corporations to uh, access, process, and uh, harvest the rich goodies that lie beneath uh, the soil in that particularly petroleum-rich region of Iraq. Ironic uh, that the Kurds, who uh, were not given a state, who ended up with uh, their language itself being outlawed in Turkey and in some other neighboring states, uh, have ended up with uh, some of the most valuable real estate uh, mineral rights-wise, uh, in Iraq. Uh, so the uh, instability of the region uh, continues uh, to delicately play against itself. And, of course, John McCain, eager to add more dead soldiers to America's Memorial Day tribute lists, uh, still going to get another brain damage award uh, today for going to Syria on Memorial Day to talk with rebels about possibly upgrading the quantity of U.S. support. Well, let's see here. Uh, um, of course, there was another uh, gun-related uh, mishap, mishap, uh, accident, uh, regular event. What do we call these things? Uh, when uh, massacres, whether it's 5, 7, 22, however many, the body count is at the end of the day when uh, one more person snaps with quote-unquote legally obtained and perfectly legal weapons, you begin to wonder what we call these incidents. Uh, massacre doesn't really have the dramatic uh, impact that it once had, uh, although that word is obviously a very potent and powerful one. Uh, but the toll, of course, rises to five in this shooting at Santa Monica, California, uh, at the uh, campus there. Um, 
course, the uh, suspect uh, was eventually shot to death uh, by police in a chaotic scene at the college library. Um, of course, the NRA will argue that, oh, if everybody had a gun, this guy could have been shot down much quicker. That never seems to happen in these incidences. So I guess until we're all packing heat, uh, these things will continue to happen. Uh, of course, such a logic is a twisted and ultimately very silly one, as most listeners no doubt will recognize and have already drawn that conclusion themselves. But uh, here we go again. And uh, what's to be done? In fact, what's to be done indeed? There's an article, uh, the cover story, in fact, on uh, June 2013's Harper's Magazine uh, by Dan Baum called How to Make Your Own AR-15, The Gun Congress Can't Ban. Uh, new technologies are emerging that allow, believe it or not, such things as 3D printers uh, to make parts which can be assembled into a fireable uh, weapon. Um, this is something that we can probably look forward to hearing uh, about on the Interactive Technologies program, which can be heard Tuesdays here, uh, one of WCBN's uh, locally produced uh, public affairs programs. Uh, this is a technological uh, issue that I'm ill-equipped to discuss, but I'm sure Jamie will be going into such things. Um, as there's this new shoe that's being developed that can be printed, uh, with the 3d printer, you, it, it, unfortunately it takes like two hours to make this pair of shoes, but you just, you know, call up the schematic from the uh, design and the 3d printer, uh, assembles the components, which are then popped together into a shoe. So soon we won't even need child labor to make shoes. We can just print shoes ourselves and uh, fight our way off to the grocery store to get what remaining items are left on the shelf uh, with our uh, homemade hand-assembled uh, automatic weapons. Um, this is the America of the future. Uh, we hope not. <clears throat> but let's turn now quickly to China. And if I can find this particular clipping, this is a bizarre story that, oh dear, has this uh, evaded me somehow. I'm going to have to sort of just summarize this one, but, uh, oh, here we go. Uh, this is very interesting. Of course, Obama met over the weekend with uh, Chinese uh, leader uh, Xi Jinping. And they met in Palm Springs, Florida, and, of course, uh, trying to keep talks uh, cheerful, helpful, optimistic, and so avoiding some potentially aggravating uh, topics such as human rights and piracy and so forth. Uh, of course, the leaker in the uh, surveillance tempest is uh, currently in Hong Kong. And uh, there's probably some conversation between China and the U.S. about extradition process uh, going on there. But this is a sort of an under-the-radar article that uh, really points to the future of uh, what's coming up down the, down the line here. And this is from the front page of today's uh, Financial Times. Oil deals fuels Beijing's Arctic drive. Uh, and this is by Richard Milne. 
who is the Nordic correspondent. Yes, they have a Nordic correspondent at the Financial Times. And the first word of this article is probably um, the abbreviation for a, a company. It's a corporate sort of a name. It's CNOC. C-N-O-O-C. That's how I'm going to pronounce it anyway throughout this article. And uh, it is a Chinese oil company. So here we go. Sinook has become the first Chinese oil company to make a play for oil in the Arctic after teaming up with an Icelandic business in a sign of the country's growing interest in the polar region. The state-owned economy is working with Icon Energy, a fledgling Icelandic group, to bid for an exploration license off the northeast coast of Iceland amid a flurry of business activity between the two countries. Quote, there is an influx of international capital and companies to the Arctic looking for opportunities, close quote, said Haidar Mar Gujdan, uh, chairman of Gujdansun, Got to have a son in there, right? If it's a Nordic name, uh, chairman of Icon. Quote, it's not just oil and gas. There are minerals. There are potential new shipping routes. Close quote. Sinook's interest in Icelandic oil exploration comes a month after China successfully bid to become a permanent observer at the Arctic Council, the main decision making body in the region. It followed Iceland becoming the first European country to sign a trade agreement with China in April. A number of deals were signed at the same time, including a cooperation agreement between Arian Bank, one of Iceland's biggest lenders, and China Development Bank. It comes as a plan by a Chinese tycoon to rent a large tract of remote land in northeast Iceland for a tourist resort. Could be revived after the change of government in Reykjavik last month. Ragnheider Eilin Arendotter, the Icelandic Minister of Industry, last year welcomed the proposed investment of Huang Nubo and is likely to be one uh, likely to be the one to decide the deal if the Chinese real estate mogul resubmits his application. Haldor Johansson, Mr. Huang's representative in Iceland, told the Freitabladid newspaper last week that he hoped to file that application in the summer after authorities with re after discussions with regional authorities. Icon turned to Sinook after being told by Iceland's energy authority that it needed to find an international partner for its bid for an exploration license in the area around the island of Jan Mayen, which is shared between Reykjavik and Oslo. Mr. Gudjonsson said, quote, There is no political motive behind ICON, or this deal in particular. This is a very interesting exploration opportunity, and there were a number of potential takers. Sinook stepped up because it had more resources. And this is not to, like, paint any great, you know, threats of peril or incursion or something, but this is a very interesting maneuver when you think about how the history of the exploration and development and settlement of the world began uh england as the primary mover and shaker in the field of uh colonial uh expansion and uh, minerals exploitation uh banks loaning money to private individuals uh who seek the uh, input of monies from other uh, powerful interests as well uh, to develop to develop resources uh, which, in theory, ostensibly belong to the peoples who reside 
in the areas where said minerals can be found, uh, but they never seem to get uh, any of the financial advantage of that which is under their feet. Uh, it's these private individuals who've made the arrangements with the money men uh, who end up uh, with all the cash. And, of course, we've seen this pattern play out in uh, a dozen uh, dozens of places uh, throughout history. Of course, Iceland went through its own banking crisis a while ago, so the influx of Chinese cash for developments of tourist uh, enterprises uh, sounds like a win-win scenario for those Iceland-loving Chinese tourists as well as uh, Icelandic hotel owners. Um, but the idea that there are potential new shipping routes available in the Arctic region is something that suggests, you know, almost the unspeakable, that as the polar ice cap begins to recede, as the global warming becomes uh, more and more uh, firmly entrenched, and as sea levels begin to rise, as ice breaks away, uh, the corporate interests who are concerned with such thing as access to and exploitation of minerals and the trafficking of said minerals to ports elsewhere where the cash can be acquired to uh, make the deal worthwhile, uh, they're already anticipating the possibility of, hey, there may be new shipping routes. It may be really easy to come over from China to Iceland. Uh, this, of course, was the great hope of England, uh, when they began to explore Canada, the idea of a Northwest Passage um, may yet emerge as an actual physical reality, uh, not because it was there to begin with, but because uh, industry has created a climate, a new climate, uh, playing on the word climate there and its multiple uses, uh, in which... <laughs> such a Northwest Passage could actually be forged and uh, carved out. Rather bizarre. Um, so as the Chinese acquire farmland in the Sudan and large quantities of agriculturally uh, you know, potent land in Africa, uh, they're now perched as well to have access to uh, oil from the Arctic region. And, of course, they've got to look out for their interests. They are the uh, leading consumer uh, at this moment. Uh, again, surpassing the United States in uh, energy usage. Uh, just another example of the way in which we've seen America sort of slip down that uh, hierarchy. And that's something that uh, we need to adjust to, uh, both psychologically as well as economically. Uh, how far ahead are we thinking? How far ahead are we allowing ourselves to think? Uh, there's just about five minutes left, I guess, on the program here, as multiple clocks have multiple offerings <laughs> of <laughs> potential times. So I thank our engineer, Andrew, for signaling me to that effect. Of course, Yazoo City Calling will be coming up after this program on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. So you should stick around for that, as well as a number of other fine quality music programming throughout your Monday evening. Looks like it's going to continue to rain out there for the uh, foreseeable future. And that's okay, because uh, it's been fairly dry here lately, and I look forward to weeding my garden 
once the soil gets uh, nicely softened up a bit. Speaking of the soil getting nicely softened up, I couldn't resist clipping this headline also from today's uh, Financial Times, not so much because of the article that uh, is contained uh, in the box beneath it, but just because it sounds like a really a headline from The Onion magazine. Uh, it's kind of a no-duh, WTF sort of headline. Here it is. Um, Displaced peasants complain of a raw deal. That's kind of funny, isn't it? As a headline, I mean, uh, that's what it means to be a peasant, is to be displaced and to get a raw deal. Uh, that's uh, hardly news when posited in such terms. Uh, peasants have been getting a raw deal pretty much every day of the year, uh, as long as humans have been counting years, and then some. So... Uh, that's a good headline there. Um, displaced peasants complain of raw deal. We will probably continue to talk about the surveillance tempest next week, since we've only two minutes uh, yet to go on this week's edition of Cray Matters. Um, this story is not going to go away. Uh, of course, it's kind of strange and ironic that so much of the blame for this surveillance scandal is falling on Obama. Um, he has inherited this entire policy and procedure. Uh, the infrastructure of the National Security Administration, which has been monitoring things like this for decades, uh, is an ongoing systems-wide uh, search. Uh, the NSA has always had supercomputers monitoring transmissions of various natures. And while, yes, in principle, uh, I am against invasive uh, surveillance techniques and procedures, uh, the fact is that we've already been living with this for quite a while. Um, we'll talk a little bit more next week. I uh, believe that uh, Dick Whaley will be uh, returning uh, for next week's program, so he'll probably have lots to say about this and the individual who has leaked the info. Uh, there's some interesting things that he's got to say. Um, yes, it is upsetting that uh, the government uh, surveils so much uh, and the kinds of information that they surveil. Of course, they're sorting and sifting. They're not necessarily storing and keeping and reading everybody's emails. Uh, they're looking for buzzwords and indicators and so forth to track down people. Uh, remember that part of the reason that the Boston bombers were caught was because of cell phone transmissions. And also remember that cell phones are just radios. Uh, you really have no right to privacy on a cell phone. Uh, that's not the language uh, of the laws that protect such uh, communications. Phone lines are privately owned. That's a separate matter. You're talking on a cell phone. You're talking to anybody who's got monitoring abilities. So keep that in mind as you send those texts. Uh, just ask Kwame, huh? Uh, anyway, we got to go. So thanks to Andrew for engineering and stay tuned to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Hello, boys and girls. This is Timothy Leary, and I'm in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Well, the only hope here is WCBN-FM. If you're ever stuck in Ann Arbor, stick around with WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor. <laughs> That's beautiful. Right on. Hello out there. It's now time for Yazoo City Calling, which is WCBN's 
uh, early blue show. This is my first time hosting the show, so I'm very excited about it. Um, I don't tend to listen to a ton of blues music, so this is exciting for me to learn some more about early blues and stuff like that. My name is Mary. I will be here until 8. If you have a request, give me a call at 734-763-3500. Otherwise, enjoy the blues music. And we're going to start out with some Lead Belly. And we're going to hear a song that my brother...